You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of Archaeology Now, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This time, our guest speaker is John Arcalis, speaking about teaching and training in archaeology, a historical perspective. Due to current COVID-19 restrictions, this talk is taking place online via Google Meets, so there may be some background noise or audio feedback in our recording. Enjoy! I stuck on the, the things about uh, uh, when I was here. I was actually one of the founders of the uh, uh, of the department back in 1975. And uh, as I said, I retired in 2004, but uh, went on teaching for a while. And I was actually head of department for my sins uh, uh, in 1990, 1993. But on the side, I was also doing other things, um, mainly looking at um, aspects of, uh, of training and education. And uh, in the 1990s, uh, 2000s, uh, I was doing quite a lot of work with organizations like uh, uh, what was then the Institute for uh, Archaeologists and now the Chartered Institute. And part of the work I was doing was getting ready for it to uh, have a chartered uh, status. And so I was involved in the Career Development and Training Committee and chairman of it for a while. I uh, higher Education Subcommittee, which I was chairman. And uh, we did quite a number of important things like, well, trying to get a career structure for, especially for the commercial uh, archaeologists, because uh, they were just leaving in droves because there was no career structure for them. And so we started introducing things like uh, CPD and things that you probably never heard of, but which are absolutely fundamental to uh, the structure of uh, archaeology and archaeological training in this country. Uh, things like national occupation occupational standards, which basically is telling us what an archaeologist needs to know to uh, be able to uh, practice properly. And one of the interesting things that came out of that, we have professionals uh, at uh, drawing up these standards, and they've been doing things like architecture and so on. And they said that, uh, in fact, archaeology uh, is one of the most complicated ones that they had to do in terms of the range of knowledge and subjects that we had to have. So that puts a bit of a mockery on, on what the, uh, the university is trying to do. I doubt if they've even heard of national standards. But at any rate, at the end of my time, uh, they got rid of our committee because they thought we'd done our job. And they appointed uh, a full-time training officer, uh, Kenny Aitchison, who some of you may have come across, uh, but uh, a Sheffield graduate. And now uh, he's moved on to other things, uh, still not very much involved, but uh, he... Uh, uh, he's been replaced by Kate Geary. So suddenly the IFA, CIFA, uh, was taking training very seriously indeed, and also uh, organisations like English Heritage. But at the same time, about that time, there were other things going on at the European level, uh, and most notably the introduction of the so-called Bologna structure uh, and this the effect that this was having on archaeological degrees. It wasn't only for archaeology, it was the whole of the university sector and 
there were agreements being made at very high levels within uh, the states. And uh, so I got together a, a committee for the European Association of Archaeologists uh, to give uh, people advice about uh, what was going on. I uh, couldn't do much about what was actually happening. That was decided much higher level, but we could at least re- react and uh, advise people. But uh, I've also been trying to get some of my uh, so I tried to get some of the, uh, my teaching, some stuff on the European. I'm trying to uh, uh, get this uh, available. And the one that uh, book which uh, came into this uh, area uh, was uh, my book, Digging Up the Past, which was basically, as it says, an introduction to archaeological excavation. Unfortunately, never really marketed properly, but uh, uh, current archaeology uh, said it was the best uh, of the bunch uh, back in about 2010. And some of the illustrations you'll be seeing uh, actually come out of uh, that book, looking at the way of excavations uh, are organised. At any rate, uh, we'll be asking one or two fairly uh, fundamental questions, like why do archaeologists or indeed why do people go to university? And that's not quite as straightforward as one might think. And so a lot of this, I'll be uh, contrasting uh, the German setup with the English setup, which will then start to explain why uh, Britain started playing such a major role uh, in the later part of the uh, uh, the last century in developing uh, ideas in archaeology. But anyway, we'll just make the first distinction. In Germany, you go to university, if you're an archaeologist, uh, to get a qualification. And that is a piece of paper saying that you are a qualified archaeologist. And so you can start uh, applying for uh, permits to do excavation and getting grants. Whereas in England, we go to school, so we go to university to get an education, which is something rather different. And so we had uh, coming back, coming in from the 19th century and, and dominating quite a lot of the 20th century, the concept of the gifted amateur. Uh, and so, for instance, the people who were becoming our politicians and civil service, they were not doing as uh, they did in France, for instance, where uh, you would go to one of the polytechnics to be uh, studying how to uh, uh, to be a civil servant and so on. The idea in Britain was that with the right training in logic and uh, so on, you could really do uh, anything. You could do any any sorts of roles. And so a big emphasis, especially from the so-called public schools, uh, Eton and Winchester and places like that, people will be studying to get a history degree or classics degree or in Oxford, uh, PPE was a favourite for people going into politics, uh, philosophy, politics and uh, economics, and just assume that people could adjust to many roles. And uh, our present prime minister is really out of that tradition. He's somebody with uh, a classics degree. One of the other things I got involved with, um, this with Kenny Aitchison, who I've already mentioned, uh, was a thing called the Discovering the Archaeologists of Europe. It was a follow-up of what, a thing that was done in uh, in England, uh, or Deep Britain, uh, Discovering the, uh, the Archaeologists of Britain, financed in part by the... Um, uh, uh, by uh, what was then English heritage. And... Um, after the, the, the British one came out, uh, there were, we jointly got to uh, join up with uh, people in uh, through the uh, EAA, the European Association of Archaeologists, to have a joint project looking uh, called Profiling the P- uh, Profession, where we looked at the organisation uh, 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 of 
the profession uh, in a dozen uh, different countries, uh, from small countries like uh, Malta up to large ones like uh, Germany uh, and uh, and Britain. And uh, there's a, this is now done every five years. The information is found to be so useful that uh, everybody wants to get hold of it. And what originally uh, the uh, idea was, uh, looking back at uh, those good old days when we were part of the, uh, uh, the common market, was to investigate the potential for transnational movement so that people could move from one country to another with uh, agreed standards uh, in uh, uh, in uh, archaeology. But the problem is that, that there were really different definitions of uh, archaeologists. And uh, I'll be taking again the contrast between uh, Britain and Germany, uh, but also the very different nature of the university training, the different structures that universities uh, and indeed archaeology generally had, uh, uh, and uh, also looking at things like the um, the need for continuous training, the, uh, the development of CPD on uh, an, a national, uh, on an international front. So just to take an example, an example of uh, the sorts of problems we were encountering, uh, when we, uh, we had individual teams in uh, each country doing the work and uh, trying to use the same basic methods, but uh, in Britain, uh, we uh, this is, I think, 2006 or somewhere around there. Uh, in Britain, there were 6,865 archaeologists uh, that Kenny managed to identify. Uh, whereas in Germany, a much larger country, there are only 2,500. So does this mean that uh, Germany was pr uh, poorly provisioned for archaeology? But when we uh, add the ancillary staff who were engaged in archaeology, um, we only had 866 uh, in Britain, whereas for Germany, we had 8,049. So uh, suddenly we see the numbers becoming a bit more sensible. The total number of people engaged in archaeology is Britain uh, just under uh, 8,000, whereas in Germany it is uh, well over a hundred thousand. So immediately you're asking what's uh, going on here. And obviously it comes back to definitions of what uh, an archaeologist is. So in Britain, uh, we're just dealing with uh, the definition of an archaeologist is someone who does archaeology and they can be coming from all sorts of different uh, backgrounds. Whereas in Germany, uh, an archaeologist is someone with the professional qualifications uh, to carry out uh, archaeology. And this, in fact, usually means uh, a doctorate. So we're not comparing uh, similar things. It means that the way in which archaeology is structured uh, in the different countries uh, is very different. And just to take another example of one of our graduates, I'm sure you wouldn't, won't mind me using him as an example of sorts of problems. He's someone who graduated from Sheffield about I suppose about 30 odd years ago, he met a Spanish lady, as one does, uh, and married her and moved to Spain and was teaching English, but started doing voluntary work at the museum in Alicante. And they got some money to employ an archaeologist. So he applied for the job and they wanted to, uh, to appoint him. But he was rejected because of the local government said he was not qualified. And the reason he was not qualified was that there is no such degree in Spain as archaeology. What you need is a degree in history. So one comes across this uh, rather stupid uh, anomaly. 
we even got uh, the uh, the leading professor uh, in Madrid, uh, Gonzalo Ruiz Zapatero, in the Complutense Museum, writing uh, to the uh, uh, to the officials and saying, "Look, this is ridiculous. He is more qualified in archaeology than any of the other people you are thinking of appointing." But even he could get absolutely nowhere. And Dan, in the find, just in the end, just gave up came back to England and they works for uh, Heritage England. So there are a lot of basic things like this going on, which was preventing uh, movement around. So this leads one on to say, well, who are these people who are archaeologists? And the world in which I was born to, uh, the archaeologists were basically middle-class people with private incomes. They would perhaps have a bachelor's degree in history or classics or ancient history. In the 1930s, uh, masters in archaeology were introduced into the Institutes of Archaeology in London and Oxford, and one or two people at places like Cambridge were starting to get uh, undergraduate uh, degrees as well. But the image that one had from television uh, at uh, that time when I was growing up in the 1950s uh, were the men uh, in three-piece suits with cufflinks and so on, looking very smart. Uh, people like Sir Mortimer Wheeler, Glyn Daniel, and the person who was my professor, uh, Graham Clark. And then the women uh, tend to be wearing tweed skirts and so on. Very tough ladies, people like Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, Lady Eileen Fox, who was later to become one of my co-workers in the University of Exeter. And of course, Professor Dorothy Garrard at Cambridge, who was the first female professor in any subject uh, at universities of Oxford and Cambridge. But there were very few professional posts and some in the universities, museums, government, ministry of works. But it was a very small group. And certainly when uh, when I was going through the system, uh, we were being advised uh, not to go into archaeology uh, unless we had a private income of some sort. So really a very, very different word. What happened uh, for my generation was a thing called, in Britain, uh, was a thing called the 1944 Education Act. And this suddenly made uh, a free secondary education uh, available. All of my family, I had, I have about uh, taking people who married into the family, probably about uh, 30 or more uh, aunts and uncles. Only one of them went to school beyond the age of 15, and uh, he only until he was 16. So it was not people talk about being the first of their family to uh, go to university. For me, I was the first one of my family to go to grammar school, let alone uh, university. And at that time uh, uh, in Britain, uh, the normal level that one worked to at the university was up to uh, the bachelor level. Again, this is an all, uh, generally in all uh, subjects except things like engineering and, uh, and medicine, uh, certainly in the arts. And after three years, you would go out with your bachelor degree, and that would be the entry point uh, into uh, the uh, the professions, into the careers. So suddenly, uh, after 1944, uh, we started seeing a new group of archaeologists coming in from uh, the lower c- classes who were acting as uh, volunteers on uh, excavations during uh, their K 
applications. And so, uh, and I will be working at weekends with uh, the local museum, uh, helping on uh, their excavations, or indeed sometimes doing the excavations for them. And so we were a group of people who were brought up with a great emphasis on practical skills. We learned how to dig using a pick and shovel and trowels and so on. And suddenly the whole image of what an archaeologist looked like uh, changed. Suddenly uh, we became young, dressed in uh, in jeans and t-shirts and shorts and sandals and in some of the male cases uh, with, with beards as well. So very different from the people who'd uh, uh, gone uh, before us. When we come to the 1960s, though, it is still we're looking at uh, an elite education and one which is uh, very much dictated by uh, money and very much a question of where your examination marks uh, good enough to get you into university. If you got into university, then your fees were paid and depending on how much money your parents had, uh, you would get uh, some sort of grant. I got almost the maximum grant as uh, coming from a sort of lower middle class, working class uh, background. At this time, there was still, archaeology was beginning to appear in a number of uh, universities uh, where one could go to study. Uh, and the main ones were Cambridge, Durham, uh, Edinburgh, Cardiff, Belfast. The people I was meeting on excavations were advising me to go for Cambridge if I possibly could. And uh, that fortunately was what I managed to do. And then the postgraduate level, well, those universities were educating uh, postgraduates, but um, uh, we've seen that uh, Places like London and Oxford were offering uh, master's degrees. And these are essentially sort of conversion courses for people uh, who had not studied archaeology and uh, studied something like history. And so for them to become uh, archaeologists. Um, most people just stayed on to do the bachelor uh, as before. And uh, only a small minority of people would go on to do the, uh, the doctorate. We'll see a big contrast there with, uh, uh, with Germany. And um, it was only those who wanted to go into uh, some sort of academic life. The master's degrees were really unimportant, uh, and uh, we'll look at those a little bit later. With the 1960s, 1970s, there was a big expansion. Suddenly up to 20% of the population were beginning to uh, go to, uh, uh, to university. And this is when the new archaeology departments uh, uh, came into existence. And we're really talking there. The ones that were really dynamic at that time were Sheffield, Southampton uh, and Reading. We still get our grants, our fees were paid, but by the time we come up to 2006, up to 40% of the population was going to university and the hopes uh, were to expand uh, up to uh, 50%. But this, of course, started putting uh, great strains on the, uh, the university finances. And so gradually payment fees and, and grants uh, started being diminished uh, until largely uh, they disappeared and uh, we had to move over to the system of loans. Just say a few words as well about what uh, were normally labelled as specialists. And in Britain, uh, these were just archaeologists who worked with non-traditional data. We weren't going around uh, drawing pots and uh, looking at me metal objects and things like that in museums. And uh, people were starting to work on animal bones and pollen. Back when I first came to Sheffield, I, I'd been digging in Exeter and uh, I brought some of the finds up uh, to work on. 
it was the animal bones. It wasn't the pottery and things like that. Uh, museums were, weren't really interested uh, in that. But we found a number of people who were coming from outside uh, traditional archaeology, uh, environmentalists like uh, John uh, Stell uh, Evans coming in from uh, biology, statisticians like uh, Gary Locke, or geologists like uh, David Peacock. And as far as we were concerned, they were archaeologists, and as such, uh, there was nothing to prevent them going out and doing their own excavations, which uh, uh, which they did. And really just a very different approach. Uh, uh, I suppose uh, David Peacock was the one that most intimidated uh, the museum people. Instead of turning up with a, a pencil and paper to draw the shape of the pots, uh, he turned up with a hacksaw uh, and was hacking bits off of, the, uh, off of the pottery. Completely different in Germany, because these people were not uh, archaeologists, indeed, uh, to a certain extent, they didn't exist. If you wanted your animal bones looked at, you had to go uh, to somebody from another discipline. Uh, so, for for instance, for the Tier Institute, these were not people who were allowed to excavate. And uh, the problem was that they came in with their own uh, questions. They weren't uh, particularly lined up to uh, deal with uh, the sorts of questions that we as archaeologists uh, were beginning to ask. So that was a quick overview of some of the things that were going on uh, in the universities and the contrasts that were beginning to develop between what was happening in Britain and what was happening on the, uh, the continent. What was also going on was a change in excavation structures. And uh, we see this uh, really going on uh, through the 1960s and 1970s. As I've already mentioned, in the 1930s, we were looking at an elite group uh, who were directing the excavations and doing the uh, recording. And uh, the digging was largely done by usually unskilled, but uh, some very skilled excavators who started making their life uh, working for people like Sir Mortimer Wheeler. But in the 1950s, we see this increasing importance of student volunteers replacing the work. And by the time we get to largely 1960, uh, the workmen have been largely uh, replaced uh, by uh, student volunteers. And we start seeing a new structure, which is based on a sort of meritocracy that you can start at the bottom and work your way up uh, to the top. As I said, mainly by the time we come to the 1970s, when we see uh, the professional archaeology, the, the profession of archaeology really beginning to take off, uh, the majority of the people on an excavation uh, would uh, be people who would have a degree, not necessarily in archaeology, usually people with a bachelor degree. Enormous contrast with, with Germany. If you went on an excavation there, you would be very lucky to meet an archaeologist because uh, the excavations were run by people, these people with uh, doctorates uh, working usually for the local Denkmal Amt. And they would usually have several excavations that they were running. Uh, so they'd be moving around from uh, one excavation to another. So you had to be lucky to get or make an arrangement to actually meet them on site. Again, uh, in Britain, by the time we got to 2006, over 90% of the archaeologists uh, in the field, uh, or indeed in archaeology generally, would have a degree. And for the people under 30, the percentage was even higher. So we see this enormous shift of the people who are actually doing the digging. And taken from my book on excavation methods, where I've uh, tried to show diagrammatically what was going on. So with the uh, traditional 
system of uh, Sir Mortimer Wheeler, uh, you would have the middle class group who would be uh, the director and, and the uh, uh, the supervisors and, and perhaps some uh, students, and they would be looking after the administration, documentation, and perhaps doing some of the fine digging. Main digging would be done by by the labourers, and uh, you had here a ceiling uh, that uh, virtually nobody from the uh, the digging group of people uh, would be able to move up into the upper hierarchy. And uh, so there, this is a real that dotted line that I put in there is a real class division. As I said, when we come to the 1960s, this is uh, breaking down. And so uh, I won't go through these in, in too, too much detail, but uh, basically you could uh, start at somewhere like Verulamium uh, and um, as a volunteer, you'd be having to pay your own way uh, to uh, get there. But if you were a useful digger, the excavator Shepherd Freer uh, might offer you payment to be a student uh, labourer. And so uh, I remember the first card I got was from Sirencester, John Wager, uh, saying he was willing to pay me five shillings an hour uh, to act as uh, a student uh, labourer, which for someone like me was quite big money at the time. And uh, But from there, you could gradually move up, volunteer to student labourer or to site, site supervisor, <coughs> and then go on to uh, be uh, directing uh, excavations. So it reflected in many ways what was going on in so- society. Uh, I put in Winchester uh, as well. They never really used the student labourers. And uh, so one would be moving up from volunteer up into the various supervisorial levels, and you'll be taught how to uh, be doing your digging actually in the field. And uh, well, I won't go into uh, the uh, what was going on in the professional units, other than to say uh, that we start finding in the 1980s, especially that um, the people who are de- doing the digging, the structures become very much more complex. And when we come down to the very bottom, it really is a much more egalitarian system. There is a project uh, director. There will be perhaps a field co- coordinator, but uh, more and more. Uh, the people who were doing the digging uh, were uh, young professionals and they would be expected to be doing their own recording and so on uh, within the structure of the um, uh, uh, of the um, uh, of the excavation so we've moved from a very hierarchical to a relatively egalitarian uh, structure but this was something which was rather peculiar to uh, to Britain. Uh, I don't know quite what the situation is any longer in uh, in Greece, but at the time I was uh, I was writing about these things. Uh, you would have a director, you would have supervisors, and so on, and students. And essentially, in fact, you had the wheeler structure. But the reasons for this was that if you were doing an excavation in Greece, and uh, it's also true in places like Bolivia, this was seen as a way of bringing money in from outside into uh, into uh, societies where uh, uh, outside money was more than the welcome. And so you would be expected to be employing some of the local labourers. Indeed, it would very often be written into your permit. And well, a recent paper I read about Bolivia was that the opportunity work on the on the excavation had to be spread amongst the whole community so there would be a continuous change going on uh, as to who was working on the excavation um, doing things like the, the the digging and the washing of the fines and uh, the sieving and so on in germany in the netherlands uh, we had a rather different sort of setup and there the normal structure was these people with their doctorates uh, would be coming out uh, uh, and uh, directing the excavations and eventually writing them up. 
But the people who were actually doing the excavation and the recording were in fact a class of technicians, very highly, some of them extremely highly skilled, but without uh, the academic training that the archaeologists had. And then underneath these, uh, you would have a foreman uh, who would be looking after the laborers again. Very often. In fact, when I was working in southern Germany, a lot of the people who were doing the digging were people from Eastern Europe, from the communist bloc. A moot point as to how many of these people were archaeologists. I'm just looking at this uh, and thinking, well, I've got this wrong. Because the technicians were, in fact, not counted as archaeologists. These were the people who were being left out, as in the definition of, of archaeologists. And specialists really were specialists. They were not people with uh, archaeological expertise. As we've already mentioned, uh, the uh, 1970s uh, started to see the sudden expansion of the archaeological world. And it's these people who had been student volunteers in the the 60s uh, and going on into the 70s who formed the bulk of the people who... Uh, in this country became the young professionals again but they were coming from all different sorts of backgrounds you didn't have to have a, uh, an archaeological de- degree to uh, become an excavator and many people again were without archaeological degrees from moving up we even had professors uh, in in britain uh, of archaeology who didn't have archaeological degrees and indeed one or two of them who i can think of one one or two cases of people Uh, professors who didn't have any degree at all. We had a very much more flexible system than uh, one had uh, on the continent. When I was writing about these things and trying to uh, decide really what was was going on, I decided there were perhaps uh, three main classes of the way in which archaeology was being taught at universities. In fact, when one looks at detail, there is enormous variety uh, from one country to another. But what I call the fragmented system, uh, archaeology is part of another discipline, as we've already seen it in uh, Spain with the problem of the history degrees. But uh, we would find that archaeology was considered largely to be part of another discipline like history or art history, ancient history. Uh, Doing Paleolithic archaeology in France, uh, you would be studying geology. And there were no or very few uh, archaeology departments. In places like France, the best archaeologists were peeled off to uh, join the CNRS, uh, which was essentially a research uh, position. But some of them uh, got themselves involved in, uh, in teaching. But the people who were doing the teaching in the universities were rather looked upon as being at the sort of second level uh, of archaeologists. Archaeology, uh, if one was going in to become an archaeologist, would be largely done either as specialisations right at the end of your art history or whatever degree, or at the postgraduate level. And this is a system which was typical of uh, France uh, back in the uh, 1960s, 1970s. It was a disaster. And it got so bad that the French government set up a national committee uh, to try and work out uh, what uh, had gone wrong and why France in its uh, ideas and the development of its archaeology was so refined its neighbours like Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, uh, Britain. So this basically this fragmented system with uh, where you had staff in the universities who were dotted around in other uh, departments it just did not work. And this, of course, is what the powers that be in Sheffield are suggesting we should go back to. And uh, we know it doesn't work. Uh, one must ask why on earth they're not listening to us. Uh, one could occasionally uh, get uh, 
larger uh, departments. The normal number of uh, lecturers in university, you perhaps get a, get two or three, but as I said, in different departments. But there were exceptions, uh, and in Spain, uh, history was seen as the way to become an archaeologist. And uh, so they did tend to get fairly large departments, but as the uh, advertising for Uh, holidays in Spain under Franco said, uh, Spain is different. And uh, in some ways, it probably still is. Then my second system was what I called the closed system. This is where archaeology exists as a separate discipline. But it is something which is uh, mainly for this professional training to uh, get your qualifications. And the people who would be going through the system would normally be uh, employed uh, locally. They would end up as the local archaeologists, but going in with their doctorate. So uh, they would normally be so, uh, studying for uh, about five years at minimum, uh, usually uh, seven or eight, usually doing excavation work in the meantime. The emphasis uh, of the training there was on methodology, excavation, though running excavations, most of them, these people did not have much experience in actual uh, digging. And then there would be the artifact identification, studying collections in uh, museums, dating, and the dominant uh, approach was uh, so-called culture history, looking at cultures or historical archaeology. So what one ended up with was very small, uh, highly specialised departments based on studying uh, different periods. So you would have a department of Urgeschichte uh, looking at Paleolithic, Vorenfrugeschichte, which is largely uh, uh, looking at prehistory and going on in perhaps in some places, uh, early historical period, Roman provincial archaeology, medieval, or perhaps uh, uh, Near Eastern archaeology. But a university could have two or three, four of these uh, uh, these departments working uh, independently. And the normal size of the departments there would be perhaps about three to five uh, lecturers. And this was absolutely typical of the people who had the so-called uh, Humboldt uh, system, which we'll look at later. But it's very typical of uh, Germany and of uh, Scandinavia and uh, to a certain extent of uh, the central European countries uh, as well, places like Uh, Czechoslovakia uh, and Poland. And then we come to what I call the open system. This is uh, where archaeology exists as a separate discipline, but it is invading uh, the neighboring disciplines because the specialists uh, in those disciplines are not dealing with uh, archaeological questions. And so you find the archaeologists are teaching themselves botany and biology and, uh, uh, and so on. And uh, the result of this was uh, one started getting rather more general degrees. And, uh, well, when we were writing in the the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, it was fairly common in Britain to have 10 or 20 uh, lecturers. And people were increasingly being appointed by the specialism that they could offer uh, the department and the training of the students. So things like animal bones and pottery analysis, metalworking, I suppose for Caroline, I must add glassworking and so on. So we're suddenly we're getting a large range of things that are being taught to uh, together and fitting in very nicely with the national occupational standards that people were getting a very wide 
education in a whole series of different uh, areas. And there was uh, a very strong emphasis on teaching theory, but also teaching practical methodologies, such as work in laboratories or, or field work, the sort of stuff that many of you will be familiar with. And at that time, it was really typical of Britain more than uh, any other uh, country. So we were getting further and further away uh, from what was going on on the continent. And here I've sort of symbolized this in drawing over on the left, but it's, uh, there is a fragmented system with each subject uh, with perhaps one or two archaeologists teaching within other subjects like history or the history of art and so on. As I said, typical of uh, France. And it just collapsed in the 1970s. And the people in the, who have been doing research in the CNRS started being more attached to uh, universities and uh, involved more uh, in teaching. And now if you look at the places that are top uh, listed as the top per universities at which to study, suddenly the French are there with, well, places I have most to do with, places like Bordeaux, uh, and Toulouse, uh, and to a certain extent Paris as well. So a complete change really there. In the closed system in the middle, which I said was typical of Germany, you have these tightly defined uh, subjects. You can perhaps do a bit of botany, an extra part of your degree, but uh, they were not uh, the these other subjects were not really integrated with uh, what the archaeologists were doing. One of the things that was notably lacking in Germany was uh, the theoretical approach. And it got so bad uh, in the end uh, that uh, the younger, well, the students and the younger lecturers finally got together and they decided we need an equivalent of uh, TAG, the Theoretical Archaeology Group. And suddenly at the 1990 meeting of TAG in Lampeter, there were, I've forgotten how many, 60, 70, 80 young Germans uh, turned up and uh, had their own well, they talked about German archaeology for the rest of us, but had uh, their own separate meeting because they didn't want their professors to know that they had been going and uh, engaging in such things as theory. They won, basically, and uh, now uh, many of the big conferences, especially the regional ones that move around Germany, uh, there will always be a theoretical session. And so a lot of the teaching and discussion of theory, rather than going on in a special conference or in the universities, it is largely uh, being done uh, at these regional conferences. And then, well, the British uh, open system where I tried to symbolize the overlap of uh, archaeology with these other subjects like geography and zoology and so on. But it's mainly, if you want, we're putting uh, an arrow in this, where things are expanding. It would be largely going from archaeology out into these other subjects. So archaeologists really invading these other subjects. And this is where terms like archaeobotany, uh, archaeozoology and so on uh, come from, uh, dealing with this new reality that we were dealing with in archaeology. When we look at the actual degree structures in these different countries, or well, Britain, we're all familiar with the uh, Bachelor in Archaeology, which we get after three years. And as I said, this is the normal entry point into the profession. We had uh, destructured courses. There will be a defined curriculum different from one university to another. It wasn't thing that was standardized, but uh, the students would have a curriculum that they would have to follow with hopefully choices in it. And at the end, uh, there would be a written examination, uh, perhaps a small dissertation. 
master's degrees were really unimportant. And if people wanted to go into an academic uh, career, then the entry point there became the doctorate and uh, the dissertation uh, plus the, uh, the viva. And uh, if we look at what master's degrees, the development of those, they have changed very fundamentally their role within degree structure. Pre-1980s, well, I got my uh, BA uh, at, uh, at Cambridge, and after two years, I was still not in prison or done anything to disgrace the, the university. Uh, so my college invited me in to have dinner and said, right, you can now have your master's degree. So uh, I had to eat at dinner to get my master's, uh, which makes some people a bit sick nowadays. The master's uh, archaeology degrees, as I said, were mainly orientated to towards uh, people who are wanting to change subjects of so the conversion degrees. And uh, certainly at Cambridge, uh, they were mainly oriented towards uh, foreign students uh, and especially the American market. So they were mainly for outsiders, although quite a number of people stayed on. In Edinburgh, a rather different uh, setup that you could get your BA after three years in your examinations. But if you wanted to, you would stay on an extra year, do a dissertation and then get your master's. And then, as I've mentioned, at places like Oxford and London, you had these conversion courses and with taking on people, especially with uh, history or classics uh, first degrees. Incidentally, interesting to notice, there was no bachelor degree in archaeology in London, for instance, uh, until the 1970s, uh, and in Cambridge until the 1980s. They were very slow in the take-up uh, compared to places like Sheffield. In the 1980s, we then see the rise of the master's courses, which are for professional development. People were wanting to start moving up the system a bit more by getting their specialisms. So we start seeing uh, master's degrees in uh, environmental uh, archaeology. There's a lot of competition went on between uh, universities uh, uh, in setting up these uh, master's degrees, trying to get postgraduates. Uh, which gave prestige and, of course, money. By 2008, when we were looking at the uh, degree courses, there were 203 different degree courses in archaeology in Britain being taught at 41 different institutions. So a complete uh, change uh, from uh, what the situation in even the 1960s. And increasingly, the entry point uh, for the profession became the uh, the masters, and for more and more people, uh, for the uh, became uh, the doctorate. Although people would very often go away for a while, get their digging experience, uh, and then come back to do their masters. Go now to Germany and uh, look at what the traditional system was there. I mean, not, this was typical of large areas of uh, of Europe, especially Northern Europe, and it's a so-called Humboldt system. And under this system, there was no fixed uh, curriculum. Uh, the education was uh, unstructured, and so each individual designed their own degree. Some people would do a uh, magister, which would take uh, five years, but this was unusual. Most people would be going to university for uh, seven years, and uh, so the doctorate became the main entry point into the uh, profession. In, uh, Denmark, yes, man called Christian Christiansen. I was a member of his examination jury. We had a preliminary look at his uh, thesis and said, well, can this be defended or, or not? And then without being allowed to alter anything or taking on to any of our comments, he had to go out and get it published. And once it was published, he had a public uh, 
examination with a big party afterwards. Uh, and uh, that is how he got his habilitation and was allowed to uh, take over a- academic uh, posts. Under the uh, Humboldt system, it was normal to study at other universities. You'd have your home university and uh, then you return there to present your thesis and have a viva. But there was no written examination. The thesis was often based on material from rescue excavations uh, and rescue uh, research excavations uh, from whatever land, whichever state you were working in, uh, and usually working with the Landis Denkmal Lamp. So some very good points uh, uh, about it, but uh, other uh, problems. To try and organize this, we then got the uh, Bologna process. And this is the attempt in Europe to standardize university structures and teaching to allow this easy movement between countries. And it was started officially in uh, 1999 with 26 countries taking part. But now across the world, there are 49 countries involved in this. And it was adopted around the world in places like Australia to, again, give... uh, uh, give their students the flexibility of being able to uh, operate on uh, the world market. And the system was essentially based on uh, the Anglo-American university st- system. And the conversion uh, within the, the European Union was supposed to have been cleated, completed uh, by 2005. And the structure is the one that we are perhaps very familiar with, uh, the bachelor uh, for three years, uh, the master's uh, for two years, and uh, the doctorate uh, for uh, three years. For many of these, there is a fixed uh, curriculum, especially at the lower levels, Uh, but uh, these are obviously adapted to the needs of of each country and the expertise of of universities. So it was not a completely standardized system. There was a certain amount of flexibility, but the examinations were a combination of written examinations plus uh, dissertations. And for studying these things, uh, the unit of currency was uh, the European Credit Transfer and Accumulation System, the ECTS. And this uh, lies uh, at the basis of all the equivalencies across, uh, well, across Europe as to the value of examination or of archaeological degrees. Now, this started raising uh, problems in uh, In Britain, as we've already said, you went to university to get your qualification. So we're looking here at the professional training for life. If you suddenly decided you wanted to change subject, this is counted as a failure and you would have to go back to year one in whatever new subject you were going to take up. Whereas in Britain, we had no such expectation. As I said, it was for an education. And so movement across subjects was common, if not even actually uh, expected and very often happens at uh, the point where you change uh, from uh, doing the bachelor to the master's. And uh, the master's increasingly became something uh, for research or for specialist uh, training, but it was also used as uh, a general degree for people who are wanting to go in perhaps to teaching or something like that, as we've already seen for conversion courses and people coming into subject and increasingly retired people who are just coming out of interest. But obviously there were then problems with places like Spain, where there was no such thing as uh, an archaeology degree. But there was the problem of the acceptance of uh, the people with these new degrees. In Germany, as we've seen, the formal entrance into the profession was at minimum a master's and usually at the doctoral level. 
Now, the bachelor was not considered a degree at all. It was the sort of thing you would get as a technician. And so it was not accepted as it was here in, in Britain as the entry point to uh, your career. Whereas uh, if you were going into, um, uh, in Britain, into uh, one of these uh, excavation posts, indeed, even into university, the bachelor was perfectly adequate to start one's career. Although now, obviously, the, uh, the master's is becoming uh, more normal. But there are other small problems, like traditionally in English, most of the master's degree are one-year courses, not the two-year of the Bologna. And a few years ago, the EAA did a quick survey of universities and asking archaeology departments how many of them would accept a one-year English master's course. And there are quite a lot who said, no, it's, it's not adequate to enter into background for a PhD. So always check as to whether your degree is something if you're going on to another university, whether they will actually accept your degree or not. So what we've seen going on is the abandonment of the, the Humboldt system, the 68 years and unstructured courses. But one of the major problems of standardizing archaeology is the different structures, names uh, of university courses. And I think still some people are uh, trying to sort out. And the question of whether archaeology really is a subject in its own right or part of another subject. And is it something which is only there for professional training, or is it there as a general degree for people who want to go into another profession? And certainly when we did a survey here in Sheffield of our undergraduates in early 1990s, we found a third of our students that we managed to contact had gone into archaeology, a third had gone into schools teaching, and a third had gone into other subjects. So amongst our graduates, we have people like opera singers and so on. Archaeology is looked upon as a sort of general training. So perhaps finish up with what is actually going on here in Sheffield. And as we all know, it is essentially it is a financial problem, which is largely being caused by the government. First of all, wanting to charge more because of the shortfall in the repayment of loans. And also a problem of being able to attract students of the right level of, of examination passes and it's a typical bean counter uh, situation. They're looking at the entry and uh, saying, well, we should be looking at this standard of students uh, coming in. They're not looking at the output, uh, what uh, our students are, are actually doing when they go out and what they've achieved. And the problem here in Sheffield, there was no discussion with the professional bodies who are taking in these students, people like uh, CIFA, who would know all about national occupation standards. And so I'm afraid the hierarchy here of for the university were just ignorant of what the requirements are to be an archaeologist. Graduates uh, from these degree courses that are being proposed for Sheffield, they'd basically be unemployable in archaeology because they would not have the range of knowledge that is required under the national occupation standards. And, of course, they took no consideration of the financial and cultural impact on Sheffield and its region. But our problem now is how to deal with this committee, the University Executive Board, which is so ignorant it doesn't know it is ignorant, and is simply refusing to listen so for me, I mean, one of the problems uh, that we have 
is we've been dancing to the agenda of the UEB. And uh, what I want to see us trying to do is to be setting up our own agenda based upon the huge public and official support. And just wondering how uh, it can be done. Thank you for listening to Archaeology Now. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. See you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.